Hello, welcome to a new episode of Over Moro's Library, a podcast series for the Center of Contemporary Arts in Geneva. Today's episode is dedicated to a book that takes pride of place in my own library and to an author that has changed the very way I look at philosophy and theology. The book is History of Islamic Philosophy and its author was Henri Corbin. Corbin is a towering figure in continental philosophy, but also in philosophy from the Middle East. And yet he still remains fairly unknown in the English-speaking world. He certainly deserves to be rediscovered. And we could begin rediscovering him here on this podcast by starting looking at his life. Henri Corbin's life was full of discoveries and encounters. He had lots of friends although most of his contemporaries and of his friends, in his own words, had been dead for over a thousand years. Corbin had this strange familiarity with the past in the same way that he had a strange familiarity with everything that is beyond the realm of the visible. Well, let's begin with him. <clears throat> Corbin was a bit of a prodigy at a young age. He graduated uh, in, a, in his studies of philosophy, specializing in medieval scholastic philosophy at 19. And by the age of 27, he mastered to the level of being a proficient translator languages such as Arabic, Persian, Turkish, but also German and Italian and Sanskrit. At that time, this prodigious young man met Louis Massignon, a scholar of Islamic mysticism Another incredible figure that is still a, a bit forgotten in the English-speaking world, especially his book on Al-Halaj, the Sufi martyr, is a masterpiece. Massignon also had the merit of introducing Henri Corbin to what was to become the love of Corbin's life. Another friend who had been dead for over a thousand years, Suravardi, a 12th century Persian mystic and philosopher, Suravardi will constitute the center of gravity of Corbin's thought. In his 30s, however, Corbin associated also with some living people, such as Ernest Cassirer, whom we mentioned in the episode on video games, and Martin Heidegger. He was to become Heidegger's first translator into French. But the big event in Corbin's life was to come a little bit later. In 1939, he was sent by La Bibliothèque Nationale de France to source Suravardi's manuscripts in the bibliotheques of Istanbul, this mysterious Suravardi, at the time basically unpublished and unknown in Europe. So there he went, together with his wife, and he was supposed to stay there only for three months. But 1939 became 1940, the Second World War was raging across the world, and he remained in Istanbul until 1945. And when he finally left, he didn't leave north back to Paris. But he went south, through Damascus and then Baghdad, all the way to Tehran, at the time still a smallish city in Iran, in Persia at the time. Tehran will remain forever Henri Corbin's true home. Yes, he will always spend six months a year in Paris, but the other six months he will spend in Tehran 
and whatever he will teach in Paris in university, where he took the place of Louis Massignon once he retired, was the ideas that he had developed and researched together with his collaborators in Tehran, where he founded a small institute dedicated to Shia philosophy and mysticism. The final big, massive encounter in Corbin's life is that which brought him to the attention of many others, including myself, long after his death. In 1949, he met an extraordinary person, also little known at the moment, called Olga Fröbe Kaptein. <clears throat> she was the daughter of a Dutch feminist, a scholar of art history and Indian philosophy, and a very rich patron. She was a personal friend of Carl Gustav Jung, and together with Jung, she organized a little thing in her villa, Villa Gabriella, in Ascona, a small town in the Italian part of Switzerland, on Lake Maggiore. In Ascona, she created Eranos. For those who know Eranos, it is something of a legendary place and an opportunity and situation. It was an annual meeting where the world that could be defined as the world of perennial philosophy and psychology in a Jungian interpretation met to discuss symbolism, mythology, mysticism, philosophy from the Islamic world, but also Indian philosophy, Chinese philosophy, and so on. To give you an idea, the people associating there yearly were Carl Gustav Jung, James Hillman, Gershom Scholem, the great historian, the great historian of um, Jewish mysticism, but also Mircea Eliade, and Karoli Kereni, Martin Buber, Toshihiko Izutsu, the translator of the Quran into Japanese, Josef Campbell, and so on. Only one person from that milieu was missing, and for good reason. The fascist perennialist Julius Evola was never invited to Eranos, and he complained very bitterly about it with his friends, we found out later in his letters. It was for good reason, I believe, that Evola was never invited, while Corbin became a permanent feature of the meetings. And there, he uncovered for the first time the treasure of Persian philosophy to um, all his associates and influenced them very profoundly, especially people like James Hillman, the Jungian psychoanalyst and psychologist. But through the psychologists and his associates, he went on to influence countless artists, psychologists, philosophers to the present date. But why was his work so influential and so important? And why are we including today in Overmorrow's library, the library for the day after tomorrow, one of his books, History of Islamic Philosophy? Broadly speaking, we could say that Corbin's work had to do with reality in its entirety. Hence the interest for this podcast series, but also this is an indication of the ambition and what, of his work and what was at stake in his work. He understood reality as a window towards what lies beyond the immediately visible. His idea was that the point in observing reality is not to cut an extremely strong separation between what is within the realm of reason, the realm of the possible and the sayable, and what is completely beyond and outside without any possibility of moving back and forth between the two. But rather, 
His idea was exactly that we had to try and find the bridges that connect the two shorts of visibility, the visible and the invisible. So we find in his work daring and difficult notions, notions that should be understood symbolically rather than allegorically. We will go into that in a moment. So notions such as theophany or the subtle body, the celestial earth, creative imagination, mundus imaginalis, spiritual chivalry, the inner temple, and so on. Without a context, though, these, these words might sound like some strange pseudo-occult, pseudo-alchemical ideas, but they were actually part of a very rigorous system of thought. And to access this system of thought, uh, of course, we will be able to do it only very superficially in such a short time as, in, as, as a podcast episode could be. We can use his book, History of Islamic Philosophy, which was the way in which I personally encountered him quite a while ago. This is a book on the history of Islamic philosophy, not of Arabic philosophy. This is already revealing of the particular interest and personality of Henri Corbin. He didn't care much about ethnic denominations or national denominations, something like Arab could be, or European. He cared about the particular way in which the world is disclosed to us by certain systems of thought. And so by focusing on Islamic philosophy, he focused on the philosophy that takes its origin from the unique spiritual experience disclosed by the religion of Islam. But Islam is, is a massive world of thoughts and ideas, uh, theological speculations. So Corbin specifies, he is interested in the esoteric perspective of Islamic philosophy. What does that really mean, esoteric? It depends on the interpretation, of course. But Corbin is quite precise. He says that of any text, there is a literal meaning that we can understand. We can read it, skim it at the, at the level of what's actually immediately available uh, on the text, on the page. This is the exoteric understanding, the public, the literal understanding of a text. But then there is also the esoteric understanding. The esoteric is what tries to go beyond the letter towards uh, and there you see when you move beyond the letter of a text there is an enormous valley of possible and meanings and um, philosophical and spiritual paths some people tend to remain at the level of allegories you read a text you can have a literal interpretation then you can understand it also allegorically for example the way you read a parable in uh, often uh, in a gospel is allegorically. If there are a series of figures in this story, they're not really the characters of the story. They are more like um, figures that signify something else. Think, for example, if I tell you a story about a, a proud lion uh, who was reigning and, uh, in, in his kingdom of the jungle, this is, of course, an allegory. They're an allegory for a king, a human king in a country. So beyond the allegory, though, there is another level, the symbol. The symbol is different from an allegory because the symbol points to something else which could not be translated into 
words. A good example here could be when you look at um, a Byzantine church, you know, churches in the Byzantine tradition, especially medieval churches. Uh, I'm thinking of the churches you see in Sicily, for example, done in the Greek style of, of, of um, ornament and art. You see that in the apse, the kind of the part that you have at the, at the bottom of the church, in the apse, the curved part, there is usually a huge figure of Christ, the Pantocrator. And the figure is huge because it signifies allegorically that we're talking about an all-powerful God. But behind the figure, there is the background in gold. And gold is not an allegory, it's a symbol. It's a symbol of divine power, divine grace and divine presence. How can you represent that in any linguistic form? You can't. So you can use a symbol, something that is like a finger pointing to the moon. It's not by looking at the finger that you see the moon, of course. In Islamic philosophy, this idea of interpretation is expanded. It is conceptualized with one word called tawil, the art of interpreting the revelation, the Quran in particular, and also the sayings of the prophet, the hadith. And tawil says that it is important to move beyond the apparent literal exoteric meaning of the text, zahir, towards the inner esoteric meaning of the revelation of the text, batin. But are we just talking about texts here? We are not. If we were, we were just talking, we would be talking only about literary criticism. But Corbin was a philosopher. And the way he understood tawil in Islam, and especially Shia Islam, is as an exhortation and a method on how to go beyond the letter of the world. In medieval philosophy, also in Christian philosophy in the Middle Ages, they used to talk about the Liber Mundi, the book of the world. The world is a book written by God or written by the, the forces of reality. Anyway, the world is something that we can apprehend in the same way that we apprehend the text, which means we can stop ourselves at the level of the letter of the exoteric meaning, or we can move beyond at the level of the inner esoteric meaning. This is Tawil, how to move beyond the literal interpretation of reality, of the world, towards that which is outside of the world, outside of reality. When this happens, when it's possible to move towards that interpretation, theophany happens. Theophany is a Greek word, and it comes from a Greek festival, Theophania. Used to be a festival to celebrate the return of Apollo from his winter stay with the Hyperboreans. <laughs> As you might know, Apollo stayed in Greece only half the year. He spent the winter up north with the people from the north. He used to fly in the sky, sometimes over a white swan or a silver arrow, and join the Hyperboreans, and then would return in spring. The return of Apollo celebrated by the Theophania festival, is the return of Phos, of the light. Apollo is the god of the sun and of the light. Phos, light, is also the root of Sophos, which means wise. And Sophos is somebody who has Sophia, wisdom, from which, of course, philosophia, philosophy. So, Sophia, the object of philosophy, is light. 
and for Corbin, as for many others, of course, from the, from the late ancient thinker Pseudo Dionysus to Heidegger or to a poet like Rilke or to Emanuele Severino, contemporary Italian philosopher, for all of them and for Corbin in particular, philosophy is the art of caring for what is in the light, for what is clear, what is in the fosse. That's what Sophia is. But what is the clear? What is bright and clear in front of us? The clear is not what seems to us most obvious and banal, such as the surface of data of the world around us, the literal level, the Zahir. But what's truly light is the true essence and the true existence of each being. Can that be? Yes, of course. Because what we have in front of ourselves whenever we see any object in the world, any item in the big book of the world, the thing that really stands in front of us stark and undeniable is the fact that we are encountering existence. That things exist, that the world exists, or that at least that we exist. Existence is the basis and the fundamental basis of reality. And it's an undeniable and clear fact. And yet, while of an object we can say a million things about its qualities, we are speechless when we are interrogated about the fact that it exists, the mysterious fact that it exists. That is beyond language. And that thing that is beyond language, however, is the very thing that does the job of existing within every object. About myself, I can say a million things, my qualities, my properties, and so on and so forth, but I cannot say anything about the fact that I exist, my pure existence. And yet, it is precisely my pure existence what keeps me up, what constitutes me, and the same of a lighter on the table, of a pair of glasses, and so on and so forth. This light, this force, is God in theology, and especially in Islamic theology. But not God in the sense of a single divinity, uh, separate from its creatures. God is the mystery within existence and within each being. It is the essence of each, of each thing, says Suravardi, Henri Corbin's beloved Suravardi, or the true existence of each thing, says Mullah Sadra, a giant of Persian philosophy at the time of of Descartes, or also said the same Ibn Arabi, the great Sufi master. But this God that is beyond language, beyond description, beyond understanding, and that is invisible to our conceptual mind, this God reveals itself in everything. It's always a theophany. Theophany as in the revelation of the God. The world itself is a theophany. It's unspeakable, ineffable existence manifesting itself under infinite shapes and forms. These shapes and forms, says Corbin, by drawing from the work of Suravardi, are the angels. Suravardi's school, the school of illumination, is dedicated in particular to angelology, at least in the interpretation provided by Corbin. Why is that? It's because Reality, you see, is composed of many different dimensions. There is that of language, of what is beyond language, and there is also the dimensions in between, 
within each single object, there is something beyond language and something within language and something in between. This between is what guarantees the passage of the invisible into the visible, but also of the visible into the invisible. Because God manifests itself by creating the shapes of the world, but the awareness that sits at the level of the shapes of the world can also expand itself, manifest itself, by moving beyond the literal level towards the invisible. And here there is a unique element in the Islamic philosophy and especially in Corbin's vision. This movement between dimensions of reality is the angelic movement. So everything is an angel as seen from one dimension because it reveals the other dimension if seen appropriately. And this appropriate way of looking is what is called the active intelligence and the creative imagination. It is a movement, however, that is done from the side of the world towards God, from the side of uh, language towards ineffability, another way of saying it, from the side of time towards eternity, just as much as from the side of eternity towards time, from ineffability towards time, towards language, from invisibility to visibility. Why? Because each dimension of reality doesn't want to be locked within itself, doesn't want to be isolated and cut off from the rest. In the same way that a human life becomes miserable and impossible, the moment it becomes reduced to the level of the letter of what it is, the basic mere phenomenon locked within itself, as if the world was reducible to language and concepts. Some um, AI engineers believe that today. But just as a human life is degraded by that, so also God's existence is degraded if it is locked within utter ineffability and shut off from the world of language. So God feels, is a pathetic God, from pathos, feeling. In the book, History of Islamic Philosophy, you will see also hints to the, the philosophy of the Ismailis, um, a branch of Shia Islam, and their notion of the pathetic God, the God that feels, and feels sadness. This is something that Ari Corbin develops in another book dedicated to, especially to Ismaili philosophy. Here we're just scratching the, the surface of his thought, but we've touched on a couple of elements Theophany, so the idea of the world itself as this miracle of a revelation, the idea that God should not be sought far away, but within things. Here really we are between Surah Bardi and, and Heidegger. The idea of the creative imagination as a movement that takes place within the world and our ability of attuning our awareness to it as the ultimate philosophical, mystical, but also poetic and existential task and the notion of the angels and the angelic quality of all things but also the focus on experience islamic philosophy remember not arabic because the point is not the ethnic provenance of an idea but the mode that it allows us to inhabit that we can assume towards the rest of the world towards reality and these are just some of the themes touched by Henri Corbin in history of islamic philosophy and also in the rest of his work. It's difficult to list a, a comprehensive a number of his publications. They, they, they range from um, 
from aspects of Islamic philosophy in Persia, in Persia to Islamic philosophy in Andalusia, but also it goes on to Swedenborg and many other things. But if you look into this particular book, History of Islamic Philosophy, you might be able to access not only Henri Corbin's world and Henri Corbin himself as a thinker, but also an incredible encyclopedia of thinkers that are little known still in the West. Some of them are fairly well known in specialistic circles, such as people such as Avicenna, Ibn Sina, Al-Farabi, Ghazali, and of course, Ibn Arabi and Rumi, the Sufi poet. But others are just as deserving, if not more, of fame and recognition, and especially of entering the life and the awareness of scholars and people living today. I'm thinking of figures like Al-Halaj, the Sufi mystic that uh, I mentioned earlier, explored by Louis Massignon, Suravardi, obviously, and his school of illumination, but also Najmuddin Kobra, who developed an incredible theory on the symbolism of colors, and Mullah Sadra, the very first existentialist, writing at the same time of Descartes, or the Ismailis, who not only developed ideas about the feeling quality of God, and thus the fact that feeling and emotion is a constitutive quality of reality, but also they mix this syncretically Islam with Neoplatonism and Zoroastrianism. But once again, this is too interesting a topic to abandon only after 20 minutes. So we will explore it further in the next episode, when we will be speaking with Tom Cheatham, author of a number of books on Henri Corbin and on his relationship with James Hillman, the Jungian psychoanalyst that we talked about at the beginning of this episode. So please follow me next time, still here at the Center of Contemporary Arts in Geneva. Goodbye. Thank you.